Welcome to The She Births Show, a place to inspire your birth, evolve your parenting and help you live a life you love. I'm Nadine Richardson, your host and creator of the scientifically verified birth education program, She Births. I'm also a mother, yoga teacher, doula, author and speaker. At She Births, we have supported thousands of families around the world for over 13 years with our unique program. And our vision is to make birth better for every family around the world so that everyone experiences a beautiful birth no matter what unfolds. Not only do we help people have beautiful births, but we also give them the skills and the philosophy to enjoy pregnancy and make parenting easier. As well as our world-class birth ed, taken either face-to-face or online in our app, we also have a free pregnancy guide designed to help you feel calm, connected and inspired as you and your baby grow. We have a doula matching service, the perfect way to ensure you and your partner are completely supported throughout the whole journey. And we have our soul mama circles, which are the perfect postpartum network to help optimize your mindset and design your life in parenthood. Remember, if you like what you hear today, subscribe, share with a friend and leave us a review. If you're a parent about to be one, fellow health professional, join us now for an inspirational deep dive into topics with experts around the globe. We hope you enjoy this special episode. At SheBirths, we begin our course with nutrition because you are what you eat, right? Well, today's guest is Lily Nichols. I've been wanting to talk to her for years. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator. Lily has worked in prenatal nutrition, public policy, consulting, research, writing, and clinical practice. She has an in-depth understanding of why conventional policy is what it is and where there's room for improvement. You actually don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that some of the handouts we get around diet from our current systems are way out of date and in some places even dangerous. For me personally, what is amazing about Lily Nichols is that she has all of the science over 930 citations in her books showing us that mums and babies are both impacted by diet in the short term and the long term. There was so much to cover in this conversation. Together, Lily and I discuss simple ways you can tweak your diet to not only optimise your health, but also improve your birthing outcomes. We talk about my favourite, magnesium, And of course, we talk about gluten and grains and glyphosates and soy. We talk about why knowing and understanding your GI levels is important for all pregnant women, not just the GD mums. We discuss how to minimize the risk of induction by changing diet and improving the health of our children by what we eat during pregnancy. After you listen, make sure that you share the love with a friend and check out Lily's site, which is lilynicholsrdn.com. It's L I 
L-Y-N-I-C-H-O-L-S-R-D-N.com. And check out Lily's best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. There is more references to her wonderful blog in our show notes. I hope you enjoy. Lily Nichols, welcome to the She Births Show. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, you're a busy working woman and on the other side of the world. Whereabouts are you? I'm, uh, I'm in the U.S. on the East Coast. On the East Coast, yeah. And I'm in the middle of an acre down by the river outside Malambimbi. So um, <laughs> where we've just started growing our own food and pump, permaculture and swales and oh, it's very exciting. exciting. Yeah, it is Love very exciting. That. I know. After our floods, we were able to um, start growing food, which is very cool, and lots of Indigenous native plants as well, so that's really cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, We love your work. We've been recommending your books to every mum, especially the mummies that have gestational diabetes. Um, What do you love about the work that you're doing? Because you've obviously been incredibly passionate about it, to have gone this far and to have researched your books so well and to still be able to talk about it and offered so generously all the podcasts that you do, there must be something in it for you that keeps you going in this space. I mean, I don't know. At this point, I feel like the work has kind of taken on a life of its own. Uh, I never could have imagined that, um, my books would be so widely read. I really <laughs> did. I had no idea. So um, that's been very cool. I've said for a long time, having worked in the public policy sector and working clinically and kind of like, you know, feeling a bit at odds with just conventional dietetics and conventional healthcare and the outdated guidelines. Um, I knew we weren't probably weren't going to be changing guidelines anytime soon. Um, So I knew it would kind of take a grassroots approach to get more practitioners and healthcare providers up to date on the information. And at the same time, just empower women themselves with the information. And oftentimes, you know, as a practitioner, your clients are your best, (laughs) your best teachers anyways, because they make you aware of whatever whatever things are on trend that you might be like out of touch with. Right. Um, So it's been, it's been very cool to see that it, you know, it actually has um, made a difference. And I'm hearing from lots of different healthcare professionals from like OBGYNs to midwives, to doulas, to dietitians, to nurses, you know, Oh, I heard about your book from this person or this practitioner. And it's very cool to see that it's actually, um, making a difference. And, uh, you know, social media now is full of people writing posts on glycine and you're not just going to come across the amino acid glycine and tie it into pregnancy unless you've probably read my book, you know, <laughs> um, likely same might go for choline or taurine or some choline. of these other yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. lesser known uh, micronutrients that I really try to highlight in my work. So um, that's been really cool. It says seem to be making a difference and, you know, what's in it for me. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's my life's passion. Um, certainly I receive royalties from my books, so there's a financial incentive. Um, but more so it's getting the stories into my inbox of of people that have been transformed by it. You know, the woman who's had a 
really complicated first or second pregnancy and then goes on to have a really beautiful, smooth third pregnancy. And here she thought her body was broken and, uh, you know, she was just doomed to have another miserable experience. And then like, wow, I actually felt pretty darn good during that pregnancy. And you know what, I'm going to keep it up. And that those are the types of stories that I, that I love that, that keep me going. Absolutely. So yeah, you've built this wonderful momentum and grassroots change is a very powerful change. It does seem like in some areas, a little bit maybe of guidelines is changing. So a bit of that top down is also happening. But, you know, 20 years ago, when I started working in the birth space as a doula, I mean, I knew very little about nutrition, but to me, it was just ridiculous what my clients were being given. <laughs> it's like breakfast suggestion for a mum with gestational diabetes was a piece of toast with Heinz baked beans on top. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, last time I had baked beans, it just tastes very sugary. Like, yeah, you know, the madness of it all. Yeah. Right. It's, it's very, um, it's just mad. And, you know, the idea of like, it's not safe to eat during labor and, you know, you're more likely to have a cesarean really if you don't eat during labor. Like how are you going to run a marathon? You know, how are you going to keep your electrolytes and your sodium and your fluids levels, you know, in a good way? Yeah. And then what I think I love about your work, there's so many things I love, but that you really bring to our attention the importance of not spiking sugar levels and how, mm-hmm. you know, how important that is not just for the mums who, um, you know, measuring in the GD spectrum. Um, but yeah, for all of us, there's a significant kind of way that that can affect and ripple effect for us as well. Yeah. Can you talk to that a little bit. Sure. So, you know, much, much of that is carryover from my, my, first book, uh, earlier work, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, which I didn't just choose to write a book on gestational diabetes for no reason. I mean, I had worked in the prenatal space on, um, you know, guidelines for gestational diabetes for the state of California, but also in clinical practice. I was at the time was working for a um, high-risk OBGYN perinatologist, and I was the in-house dietitian. And so, Uh, they tried to get every client to me, although I didn't see every single one. Um, Most of them though, because it it was a perinatology practice were high risk. You see a perinatologist, maternal fetal medicine specialist when there's something going wrong. Yeah. And it was there that I really recognized when I would do, you know, I didn't have a ton of time with every single client, but I do like a 24 hour diet recall for the woman who has preeclampsia or polyhydroaminos or um, discordant, some, something is off, you know, baby's measurements aren't quite off, but, you know, baby's quite large or very growth restricted based on the ultrasounds, um, but maybe not necessarily GD or any other diagnosable problem. And what I recognized when I do those diet recalls was the diets were almost always like way, way overboard on refined carbohydrates. Um, yeah. And and not not necessarily like unhealthy carbohydrates. I mean, yes, a lot of times it was refined carbohydrates, but sometimes even like orange juice. I remember I had a client one time who was drinking two full cartons, the big yeah. ones. Is that a half gallon? Like, <laughs> I think I those know. are each like a half gallon. Like a gallon. liter of, yeah. 
Everything's bigger more in America. A, yeah, in America, everything's bigger. It's more than a liter. I'm pretty sure it's a half gallon, those big cartons, two of those a day. And it's like, sure, I mean, this is 100% orange juice. So, you know, arguably, uh, you know, from a whole food source, but it, into juice, I mean, that is like an umpteen number no fiber, of oranges. So they've lost the fiber <clears throat> and you're getting this crazy sugar. Mass, massive blood sugar spike, right? Um, and so I just recognized whether it was truly all the processed stuff or just like an overabundance of sugar, even if it's naturally occurring, like the consistent thread was imbalanced dietary intake, mainly like their whole diet. Like I swear 80% of what they're eating was uh, carbohydrates. There wasn't enough protein. There wasn't enough fat. And so I was like, man, this, this is like a blood sugar nightmare because you know as a diabetes educator where most of my time is being spent working with clients with gestational diabetes I'm like this is the same same dietary step as setting them up for um potential pregnancy complications and there's definitely a link with things like blood sugar and blood pressure for example so there's carryover with preeclampsia like why do women with gestational diabetes also get preeclampsia at higher rates well you know, once you get the sugar under control, oftentimes you actually don't have a preeclampsia issue pop up later on. It's not preventable in every single every single case, but vastly reduced or reduced in severity if we can bring blood sugar into balance. So I definitely recognize the importance of blood sugar early on. Um, and even as a what I would say a fairly healthy individual, um, I struggled with the imbalanced blood sugar from an imbalanced diet, you know, eating way too many carbs, way too little protein and fat for so many years that I was just always on a blood sugar roller coaster. So I knew just for my myself, just general health and well-being, it helps. But then seeing it firsthand with pregnancy complications, it was like, okay, we th this needs to be addressed across the board. Um so when I, you know, when I first wrote Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and people would ask me, hey, do you have a book on general prenatal nutrition? At the time, I hadn't yet come out with Real Food for Pregnancy. I was like, oh, there, there doesn't need to be another book. Everybody could just read the gestational diabetes yeah, one right. because it all applies. Um, yeah. Granted, there was a lot of stones unturned and a lot of other topics and controversy I needed to go into in the other book. But really, at the end of the day the the advice holds true that uh, somebody with gestational diabetes could probably run with the meal plans and real food for pregnancy and be just fine. You know, I didn't present them at three different carb levels and I don't have a whole book that's like everything is blood sugar on every single page, but generally it's going to be blood sugar balanced by default because by default, when you're eating foods that balance your blood sugar, they're going to have a certain, you know, your meals will have a certain macronutrient breakdown. Um, when you're focusing on that, you're probably focusing on nutrient dense foods. So you're hitting your vitamin and mineral goals as well. You know, it all kind of um, ties together. It's just where you're zeroing in your, your focus. Yeah. Wow. There's just like a million questions I could ask right now after all of that. Um, I suppose, oh, where to go. We're really big fans of increasing magnesium mm -hmm. uh, and suggesting that all our mums go and work with a naturopath or a nutritionist and get individualised care. So similar to you, I suppose we're really passionate about this intersection of traditional wisdom and science 
Um, no one has pulled together as much science as you have. There's absolutely no doubt because that is like an epic job. You are a very good nutrition nerd. I'm super impressed. Thank you. We're huge fans of nutrient density as well and whole foods, but very much about being non-prescriptive, I suppose, um, leaning into avoiding and favouring. So some of the things we you know, might suggest to favour would be magnesium-rich foods and iron-rich foods, as well as avoiding high sugar and processed foods. Absolutely. But you go into much more detail. That's why we recommend so many women read your book. I know there's a link as well when people have lower magnesium. I read that they also have are more likely to test positive for gestational diabetes as well, right? Because mm, yeah. I'm really interested in sugar levels will interrupt not just, um, you know, the blood sugars, but they're changing our mood. I mean, I'm mm. when I look back as a teenager when I had anxiety and depression, I mean, I was just eating tinned tuna and pasta mm -hmm. and Coca-Cola and Tin Tams. You know, it's pretty hard to regulate sugar levels and try and stay stable. It's, so it starts to create almost a persona if we let it continue and people start to believe that's who they are, you know. Um, yeah. And it interrupts our hormones. But magnesium is also very beneficial for helping on so many levels. And so many mm -hmm. Australians are deficient in magnesium due to our horrific sort of farming practices here, probably the same in the States too, right? So oh, can, yeah. you, can you talk? Because I really like magnesium as well for its um, ability to sort of look after those long muscle fibre tissues, so that outer layer of the uterus to be able to contract well. We need the good calcium levels. But without the relaxation benefit from the magnesium, we can't get a good contraction. So there's a lot to it, I think, in magnesium. Yeah. And we've even had some of our naturopaths and nutritionists increase their magnesium levels slowly over their pregnancy right up to 800 mg mm -hmm. before labour yeah. as well. So tell me what, what your thoughts, your yeah, wisdom sure. on magnesium. Yeah, well, I mean, magnesium has its hands in like almost every metabolic pathway in our bodies. Um, you know, 600 plus enzymatic reactions in the body involve magnesium. So that includes like your, your, uh, all the steps involved in vitamin D metabolism. So you have like clients that have low vitamin D, like, are they also getting enough magnesium? Cause they might be, uh, intaking enough or getting enough from the sun, but the body can't utilize it well, right? So minerals are really interesting um, piece of the nutritional puzzle. Certainly magnesium is a tricky one because like you said, with our farming practices, the, the over farming and tilling and, um, you know, not composting, not having time for the fields to lay fallow, not having animals on the lands where plant agriculture is taking place. But then probably the biggest one is spraying all the fields with tons of chemical fertilizers and pesticides. People don't realize like glyphosate, which is like the number one sprayed pesticide in the world, it was actually originally patented as a mineral chelator not as a pesticide. They just like realized later that, oh, actually it can like stop the growth of weeds probably because it's, well, it's interrupting many different pathways, but it's chelating minerals. So they can't do their normal enzymatic reactions in the plants and then the plants die lo and behold. So we have so just, there's so many potential problems um, underlying our like low magnesium intake. Even if you assume the magnesium levels in the food 
are where they should be or used to be at the time when they did ran all our nutrient databases. Um, even still, by recent estimates, like 48% of Americans are not getting enough magnesium from food. Again, that's going off of our fairly low RDA um, threshold too. But among um, women of childbearing age specifically, it's 64% do not meet the recommended intake levels. So that's that's massive. You know, two-thirds of women are not getting enough. Um, you mentioned muscle relaxation and contractions. Magnesium tends to be involved in the relaxation phase. Um, it helps with insulin regulation. You need magnesium for strong bones. You need it for immune function. Um you know, women who are struggling with morning sickness, sometimes there's a, you know, magnesium deficiency is going on there as well. There, I mean, it has its hand in like everything, as I said at the beginning. So what, what do you do? Um, I mean, first of all, yes, magnesium rich foods. Um, however, I, in this case, I really don't think magnesium rich foods are enough for most people just by how depleted everything is. Um, but so you could look it up on nutrient databases. Um, like if you put your foods into chronometer, for example, it'll tally up. That's a free app. It'll tally up your magnesium intake and you'll probably see you fall short. But nonetheless, um, lots of nuts and seeds are rich in magnesium, um, the absorption of which can be improved if your seeds are like soaked or sprouted um, prior to consuming um, so pumpkin seeds, flax seeds, Brazil nuts, peanuts, sunflower seeds, chia seeds, almonds, they tend to be pretty good sources. Many of your leafy greens, culinary herbs, um, cocoa, interestingly, if you like a real dark hot chocolate or a dark chocolate bar and seaweed. Um, and then you also get magnesium in animal foods. These always tend to be left off the list, but some seafood in particular, like caviar, cod, salmon, halibut, has pretty decent levels of magnesium as well. And arguably, those are far better absorbed than some of the um, nuts and seeds that have other um, compounds in them that prevent your body from absorbing minerals like phytic acid and tannins and other things. So, uh, you know, yes to a well-balanced diet that includes magnesium-rich foods. I do tend to encourage um, a supplement. Now, you know, how much you supplement becomes controversial. And I, I yeah. agree with you on deferring to providers on like how much to go with, but usually I try to meet like at least RDA levels. Um, if people are not getting enough from food, I think our, you know, RDA levels for magnesium are arguably set pretty low. So it's a pretty safe one to supplement with. You just want to, if you are supplementing, go with a form that's well absorbed, because if you go with a poorly absorbed form, it can cause terrible GI distress and diarrhea. So like yeah, yeah. magnesium oxide, for example, or magnesium sulfate, those are very poorly absorbed. They just trigger osmotic diarrhea. Um, but if you're going with something like a magnesium malate or a magnesium glycinate, those tend to be some of my favorites. Um, magnesium citrate sometimes can be a little irritating to the gut, but some women kind of need the extra motility if they're erring on the side of constipation A magnesium citrate can be helpful. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of including at least a little bit of supplemental magnesium in there um, as most people are just falling short. And now for a quick break. At SheBirths, we believe that pregnancy, birth and matrescence, the sacred postpartum, is an awesome rite of passage. Our free holistic pregnancy guide offers you six months of weekly support 
drops straight into your inbox or within our free SheBirths app, you can get content that will nourish your body, mind and soul. You can enjoy prenatal yoga videos, great recipes, birth affirmations, course discounts and more. From me and my team, the creator of the world's only scientifically verified antenatal classes, it is our gift to you. Sign up today and receive the free holistic pregnancy guide at shebirths.com forward slash PG. That's shebirths.com forward slash PG. And it seems to me just, it seems to make such a difference to the, whenever my yoga students used to come in, they're like, oh, I've had a headache. And I'm like, are you taking magnesium supplements? You know, oh, I was up last night with leg cramps. Are you taking magnesium supplements? And it's just that little reminder for a lot of women. And then they come in next week and they're like, oh, I feel fantastic again. I'm good. Mm -hmm. That seems Yeah, it's a major one for for muscle cramps, that sort of restless leg syndrome at night. Um, even like kind of over the top Braxton Hicks, I always think like, are you getting enough electrolytes, including to include sodium, potassium, magnesium? Um, yeah, yeah there's often something off there. So we need, we need extra, extra focus on those. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to glyphosate. Um, because it's a real pain in the ass and Roundup's been banned, but you know, other forms of similar to Roundup under different names, I think, have coming through. But I don't think people realise how sprayed our food is. Um, A a little while ago I remember reading that, you know, wheat was one of the most sprayed, one of the utilised the most, had the most glyphosate on it. I don't know if that's true anymore. Um, But basically, you know, we try to take an approach a bit like you. We're not suggesting paleo or keto or anything, but I like your option, that saying of grains are optional, you know. Yeah. So why are, why are grains optional and is gluten optional as well? And is this because of glyphosate as well as the sugar levels? What do you think? I mean, if you're doing organic, do we avoid all that glyphosate? Does it not matter? Anyway, that's a lot of questions. Just go where you Yeah. Want. Well, so for, I'll start with like the grain component and we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Um, you know, certainly I have my, uh, I've had many <laughs> iterations of my diet over the years, which actually currently does include wheat. Um, but I, I was strictly gluten-free for, um, for several years. And certainly there's been all sorts of controversy and research on should we, we should everybody eat wheat or should everybody avoid wheat? Even if you don't have any diagnosable gluten intolerance, celiac disease, um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you know, um, it's gone through all sorts of iterations and, um, where, where I try to put my focus is on, you know, how can we create the most nutrient dense, diet. So the highest concentrations of vitamins and minerals to check all the boxes for really everybody. But, you know, of course my focus thus far has been focusing on pregnancy. Um, and also how do we do so in a way that's not going to result in big blood sugar spikes? So I do think there's, if you like consuming grains and you enjoy having them as part of your diet and you have the metabolic flexibility to handle some grains without a blood sugar spike, 
by all means, um, they should still have a place in your diet. Um, that said, like the quantity of grains that has been pushed on us by our dietary guidelines is way higher than what we would have uh, traditionally consumed, even if you're looking in more recent um, modern history, not like all the way back to the paleo era where people still want to debate whether or not we had grains. Um, but in addition to that, they were uh, prepared in a way that made it easier for our bodies to digest them. So for example, sourdough fermentation, um, often grains were soaked, sprouted, or fermented prior to consuming. The same goes with legumes um, to make them easier to digest. There was simply, with even though we didn't have all the knowledge, gluten hadn't even been named, there was just an understanding that that's what you did. Also, if you wanted your bread to rise and you didn't want totally flat bread, so you wanted leavened bread, there was no commercial baker's yeast to buy. So you had a sourdough starter, which by the way, anybody can make in their own kitchen just with flour and water. It's like a miraculous science project. Um, you would make, that was how you leavened your bread. So some of it was out of necessity. Um, some of it also might've been like, wow, we all feel much better and our bones are stronger and our teeth aren't falling out. And like all these things are better when we you know, prepare things in this way. Who knows how all the traditions originally got started? There's all sorts of theories as to how. Um, but I think it's a combination of, um, you know, what's your baseline level of health? Um, can you handle the blood sugar spike? What is the way in which you're preparing your grains? Like, for example, for me, you know, fermented sourdough is the primary way that I consume wheat. There's occasional excursions too, but that's the primary way. And I've found that that doesn't disrupt my gut microbiome. I've worn a continuous glucose monitor numerous times. My homemade sourdough bread really does not spike my blood sugar. That's not true for all people, by the way, but for me personally, it works okay. Um, got super happy. Everything's super happy. So that's a way that, you know, it, it's an enjoyable thing for me to have paired with my you know, eggs in the morning or whatever. Um, and it works great. Uh, there's other individuals, um, particularly if you have like celiac disease where you have an autoimmune response to gluten, the protein in wheat, rye, and barley, where the gluten simply cannot be on the menu at all. Like even though the gluten levels are reduced in a fermented sourdough because they've been they've been broken down during the very long fermentation time there's still probably traces in there and at any tiny little traces of gluten in somebody with celiac disease will continue to cause intestinal damage and so for that person of course i'm going to say no nah. <laughs> steer clear um i guess my point on on that they're an optional component is that if you cut grains out of your diet or cut gluten out of your diet, you're not guaranteed a nutrient deficiency per se. Um, if your gluten-free diet and grain-free diet is poorly planned and the things you're replacing your gluten and grain containing foods with are just super processed starches, like everything's made with tapioca starch and potato starch and corn starch and whatever your starch of choice um, those technically are pretty processed. Yeah. They're gluten-free, they're grain-free. Um, 
However, they, they can often spike your blood sugar even more than your, your gluten containing or grain containing foods. And you'll end up with a low nutrient density diet. If there's a large proportion of these starches taking up space in your diet, because there's not as much room for those other nutrient dense foods, your foods, rich in protein and fat, your animal foods, your vegetables and fruit and whatnot. Um, so it's a possible scenario, but it's a different conversation than a scenario where somebody doesn't eat any seafood whatsoever. So like a person who doesn't eat any seafood whatsoever, there's like a slew of micronutrients that I would have on my radar to watch out for. I'd be like, oh, maybe we should check their omega-3 intake and you can get their EPA and DHA on point. And are they getting enough iodine from their other iodine-rich foods? Are they getting enough selenium? How, how many other animal foods in, are in their diet? Are they getting enough? You know, go down the list of micronutrients of concern, but with grains, it's like, they're actually really not that nutrient dense. They're just yummy and convenient. <laughs> so, a nice little dopamine hit after every meal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love how you talk about bang for buck. And I think that really helps um, people, especially when they're pregnant, to think about, well, you know, as I'm putting this into my body and your book really highlights not the effects, not just the effects of deficiency on the mother, but also on the child. And actually it's pretty scary, some of the studies that you cite, but you give solutions, which is great. Um, so I think you make it really accessible um, and practical for people. Um, I like how you also talk about um, if you're planning on eating a dessert, like changing the way that you're eating your main meal. So can you give us some examples of like how to minimize the spike? If you say you want to have ice cream uh, after dinner, what would you do? How would you change your main meal? Sure. So this comes down to kind of going back to my like diabetes educator hat. Um, how many carbohydrates can your body process in one sitting? And we're all different. But if you know you're going to have a dessert after your meal, which by default probably is going to have sugar in it, then you can plan your meal in accordance and just have a smaller portion or steer clear of the starchy carbohydrate rich foods at the meal. So, you know, a, a ice cream after dinner probably won't spike your blood sugar very much if you're having like a hearty protein option, like steak, chicken, fish, eggs, um, paired with a vegetable. Whereas if you have that paired with a large side of mashed potatoes, you'll have a little more of a blood sugar spike because of the mashed potatoes. Um, if you had for, forgoed the protein and the vegetable option and was only in the mood for mashed potatoes for dinner and you have a big plate of mashed potatoes and that's it. Um, because there's no protein and fat coming in. I mean, you get a little bit of fat in the, in the butter, whatever in your potatoes, of course, but you, you're not also having the, um, protein of your, you know, steak, fish or, or chicken option. You're not having the additional fat that would have been on there. You're not having the additional fiber from the green beans or asparagus or whatever vegetable option you have. Um, your blood sugar is going to spike a lot more at that meal. So if you followed a mashed potatoes meal with 
ice cream, we're probably going to experience a much bigger blood sugar spike. Uh, so if I were to plan an ice cream dinner, and it's not that everything is always planned, by the way, but best case scenario, um, you would have that balanced meal ahead of time with a relatively small portion of mashed potatoes, or maybe, you know, you're going to have ice cream and you're like, yeah, I can, with, I can, I can do without tonight. Um, and then have your ice cream afterwards. And it does make a difference by the way, you know, the order in which you eat your foods too, you know, you eat your protein and your vegetables first before you have the starch, just like having your meal before you have the dessert that in itself can lessen your blood sugar spike. So when you're snacking and you're, you know, your stomach is totally empty of food, that's probably the worst time to have a sweet snack or even something like a piece of fruit by itself, which, you know, probably doesn't even really qualify as dessert, right? It's just fruit. Come on. Um, but fruit on an empty stomach can really spike your blood sugar quite a bit. Whereas if you were to have snacked on some nuts or cheese or beef jerky or a hard boiled egg or something before having that piece of fruit, significantly less blood sugar spike or save the fruit for after a protein containing meal, like same, same sort of logic as, as saving the, the dessert for after a meal. So that's a pretty interesting one that you could play around with. And most of us are not checking our blood sugar all the time, but you might just notice it with, you know, how sustained your energy levels are, how quickly you get hungry after having eaten, um, just your mood and mental health, whether you feel like overwhelmed or anxious or um, levels of energy or feel, feeling sleepy. Um, those, those can all be things that are triggered by uh, blood sugar imbalances to pay attention to. Yeah. One of the mums with gestational diabetes, she's had um, babies with us twice round and, you know, she was measuring her levels and she was saying, you know, I can have a big bowl of beautiful green soup, you know, for lunch and my energy, my GI will still spike up. But if I put olive oil on the soup, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't spike as much. Can you just explain a bit about how important fats are for not just the GI, but you know, in general for our brains, our nervous system, our babies, there's so many important factors. People, again, are leaning into eating out a lot and getting really crap. Um, yeah. Inflammatory. Low quality. That's right. <laughs> Low and, quality you know, fats. All, the, all the oat milks. I mean, I just checked my own oat milk and it's like canola oil and stuff like that. And I'm like, I think there's one on the market that, you know, doesn't have these yucky oils in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a real struggle with the the food <laughs> food industry because they go for whatever is cheapest. So the fat conversation it, it's kind of twofold, um, maybe threefold. Yes, to your point about you know glycemic index. When you look at your different macronutrients, your fat, carbohydrate, and protein, fats don't spike our blood sugar at all. They just kind of help it. They just maintain wherever your blood sugar is at. And so fat along with protein tends to just be very stabilizing. Yeah. Um, whereas carbohydrates are really the only, the only macronutrient that's going to significantly uh, spike your blood sugar. So from a blood sugar standpoint, it's great to have additional fat um, with your meals. And it also just lends itself well to maintaining your satiety. You know, all of our protein rich foods 
for the most part, pretty much come with fat unless you're doing some sort of processing to take it off. Like your chicken comes with the skin, your eggs come with the yolk, the milk comes with a cream top until they've skimmed it off. You know, so I'm a big proponent of just keeping the fat in wherever it was naturally found. <laughs> it's just meant I mean, to be. I mean, in milk, you can't absorb the calcium, right? Unless the fat is actually there. Is that right? You you need the fat soluble vitamins in there, yes, to properly absorb and utilize your minerals um, to include calcium. So, yeah, you'll absorb some, but you're not going to optimize absorption. And then there's all sorts of fat soluble nutrients that require fat to be absorbed. So your vitamins A, D, E, and K are all fat soluble. We have some like, you know, these specific fatty acids like our EPA and DHA that are fat soluble. There's a number of antioxidants like beta carotene that's fat soluble, um, lutein that's fat soluble. And so these are things where you need fat to <laughs> absorb a lot of the good stuff that's in our food. You need fat for hormone production. So there's some really interesting studies back in the 90s that were done. Uh, looking at low fat diets in women and you put women on a low fat diet and their progesterone and estrogen levels tank. So you think of pregnancy, a time where your body is really tasked with pumping out a lot of hormones. And you also can have very serious consequences of not having sufficient level of hormones. Think of how many women are taking progesterone um, in early pregnancy to try to avoid a, a pregnancy loss. I mean, certainly you're your placenta eventually takes up the slack and starts producing lots of hormones, but what's it going to make its hormones out of if you're not eating enough fat? <laughs> Our mm -hmm. sex hormones are built off of cholesterol, which we get from fatty animal foods. Um, so if for many reasons, we, we should not be fearing fat. Um, that said, we should also pay attention to the quality of fat and our dietary guidelines are just completely inverted on what types of fat are supposedly healthy or unhealthy. Um, saturated fat was wrongly vilified for decades and decades based on really shoddily done research from Ansel Keys. Um, that's been pretty well disproven. And we have all sorts of data suggesting that, you know, saturated fats coming from whole foods like red meat, dairy products, chocolate, does not have the same effect on our cardiovascular risk as processed saturated fats coming in from a diet heavily based on processed, ultra-processed foods, which like almost 60% of the American diet, 60% of calories eaten in the US is coming from ultra-processed foods. So you can take people who like distill down, oh, well, the saturated fat intake is high, so it must be all these saturated fat containing uh, naturally containing foods. And like, no, it's a saturated fat coming in and all the processed garbage junk that you made, not necessarily saturated fat itself. It's like, it was, you know, it has been wrongly vilified. And now for a quick break. Contrary to popular culture, She Births believes that childbirth can be the best day of your life. It is designed perfectly to be empowering, enriching and bonding. An awesome rite of passage. Our childbirth education programs have helped thousands of families around the world since 2008, allowing families to not only feel empowered through education, but also connect with their innate birthing wisdom to create the best birth possible and begin their parenting journey with confidence. 
She Birth's unique methodology was scrutinised in university trials and has been published in the British Medical Journal for improving birth outcomes for both mother and child. I'd like to invite you to begin preparing for birth today. Just go to shebirths.com to discover our two-day weekend face-to-face courses or access the online courses from anywhere around the world. That's shebirths.com. Create your beautiful birth with the world's only scientifically verified antenatal classes. On the flip side, our our way excessive intake of vegetable oils um, is pretty much completely unnatural in in the context of human history. Think about how would you get oil out of an ear of corn? How would you get oil out of a soybean? You could very easily like render down fat from a pig or or cow that's been harvested and get your lard and tallow. You can very easily skim the cream off of your milk and then clabber it into butter. Um, even avocados and olives and coconuts, like very easy to get to to um, you know compress those foods and and have the fat you know come out of it. Right, it's easy to get oils from those things. These um, seed oils is a completely different animal where you, they would not exist were it not for, you know, the industrial revolution, because you need a whole gigantic factory to to extract all the oils and a whole bunch of chemicals and solvents and bleaching agents and deodorizers and other things to get them out. Um, But ultimately, it's the fatty acid profile of those foods where we're just really not designed to handle that excessive quantity um, of omega-6 fats that we are now consuming. It just has never been a part of the human diet. Um, Mm -hmm. So this concept that unsaturated fats are healthy and saturated fats are harmful, again, it's just been completely inverted. Um, It's just completely upside down, isn't it? You know, the food pyramid. Yeah, it's the same with birth stuff. It's just like total madness. Yeah. It's why did we ever mess with Mother Nature so much? I don't know why. Well, look Profit. how angry <laughs> she is right now about it all. And look how mm-hmm. sick we are as a generation and obesity and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. yeah. There's so many, I think there's so many. I mean, going back to that glyphosate thing, I, mean, I just I still cannot believe they're still spraying it on, on kids' parks around Australia, you know? The mm. Yeah, well, it hasn't been banned here holy cow there's you know corn and soy fields close yeah. to me and, and they, there's air there's aerial spraying so at the end of the what people don't realize about the the reason that grains and legumes are so heavily contaminated with glyphosate relative to other foods is that they use it as oh, it's called a crop desiccant so at the end of the um, growing season they spray glyphosate on on the plants rather heavily to kill them and dry everything out so you know a desiccant you're drying it out so it dries out the leaves it dries out the you know corn on the cob um it dries everything out so that you can harvest it and it increases yield significantly because otherwise you would have to wait until everything dried out and died back naturally in the fall yeah. And you're going to lose a significant amount of your crop to like mold and fungus and birds and animals and other things. So they're like, great, we'll just spray everything with these kill chemicals 
and then harvest it. And we have greater yields, not really thinking through the fact that we have tons of pesticide residues on these things now and And actually raise the limits of the pesticide residues as a result because like it's inedible. Yeah. And they have even small amounts you talk about in your book, you know, have a significant impact on our children's development on their fine and gross motor skills and so many things. And yeah, glyphosate, there's a lot of class actions going on um, with glyphosate around cancer and all sorts of stuff. Um, Yeah, it makes me really upset and angry. I mean, I think that's the only benefit of the flooding in Australia is that people are starting to realise that we have to regenerate our soils, we have to look after it, we have to localise as well. It's localisation to die, really. Mm. Um, And it's not just about growing our own veggies. If you don't have that room, it's about the community gardens. It's about making sure that the soils and the the foods that you have access to are close by because we're getting shut down. The farmers are losing their crops. I mean, we had a a beautiful, very early on in the She Births course, a wheat farming family, and I've had lots of pastry chefs too, and they're like totally shocked by, you know, us recommending and minimising wheat and gluten in the diet and but they take it on. And the wheat farmer actually said to me in the break, he said, look, I don't even eat the wheat that we grow on our farm because... In order for us to make money, I need to grow a grain that's three times the size in one third of the time. So it's sprayed with everything. It's genetically modified. I'm not going to touch it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Out to the masses. And this is why, you know, education is so empowering for us to have us. This is why, and this is why commercial wheat is often wreaks havoc on so many people's systems. I mean, myself included. Um, I can make a homemade sourdough pizza crust with organic wheat. And yes, I do always try to buy organic flour because then that at least minimizes the chances that it's um, there may, might be cross contamination from what blew over from another field or something like that. But at least it, it's not directly sprayed itself and it does um, have lower levels. Organic does have lower levels of glyphosate or undetectable compared to non-organic. Um, but I can tolerate a homemade pizza crust or homemade bread just fine. You give me a commercial sandwich from a sandwich shop or a commercial pizza and, you know, it's a day of digestive distress. Um, so it does make a difference for a lot of people, just yeah. the quality. And it's such a bummer that this becomes a conversation around like class and access and, yes. you know, privilege because really, I mean, what, what do you get, <laughs> what kinds of things do you get co- covered from government assistance programs and whatnot? It's all just whatever the commercial, commercially grown stuff is, yeah. whether or not it's disrupting your system, that's all you have. And so if you don't have the option, I, I agree with you to just sort of minimize the, the, yeah, the commercially grown grain foods as much as possible, those really tend to be the ones that are the highest sprayed and have the highest residues of really basically all of our food. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating and annoying. Now tell me about iron. I just opened the doors for the doggies. That was why I had to get up and them tinkling. The little sausage dogs wanted to go out into the sunshine because it's not raining here. It's a miracle. Um, why do so many of us have low iron? And we even, like when we 
when I'm talking with naturopaths and nutritionists, you know, as a doula, I'm always like, please work with them, make sure you get tested in each trimester and have a conversation with them because they're going to be looking at the parameters in a very different way to a midwife or an OB even because we're actually often a lot lower than what the blood parameters of conventional medicine are saying. Is that right? Mm. That's the way I've been told by my integrative doctor anyway. Meaning the integrative docs have a higher like a more stringent threshold for anemia or they aim for lower iron levels? They aim for higher because we're higher. Yeah. So being on the low side of the, you know, the bar um, is more concerning to, to a naturopath or an integrative Mm -hmm. doctor. And, you know, there's only like a very small amount of the gastrointestinal tract. Is that right? That absorbs iron. Why do we all have so such low iron what's going on there's there's a lot going on so I mean naturally your iron levels do decline over the course of the pregnancy you have hemodilution so more fluids on board so just your blood is more dilute so which can drive down um, various markers of iron Um, there's a lot of different nutrients involved in iron metabolism like everybody focuses just on the iron but People don't focus on the vitamin A and the B12 and the folate and the copper, and I'm probably missing a few. Um, Many of these other micronutrients that are involved in the creation of red blood cells and where iron is going in our body. Is it staying in our bloodstream where it should be to be delivered to cells so they can, you know, utilize oxygen and other things for energy? Um, Or is it being squirreled away in our tissues where it's causing inflammation and and other issues? So there's a lot going on. Um, You know, the majority of the iron in our body really is recycled, like most of our the iron that's floating around has been recycled. So we've broken down old red blood cells and released the iron and reincorporated them into wow. new red blood cells. Um, and our body, you know, iron tends to be kind of like a tricky mineral for us to absorb a whole lot of. So if your iron levels truly are low and all of the um, related micronutrients have been addressed, then I start to think of is, are there like gut issues that are impairing absorption? Um, what types of iron are being taken in? So, you know, there's, there's heme iron in animal foods, there's non-heme iron in plant foods, um, meaning in, in animal foods, the iron's already incorporated into like hemoglobin. <laughs> so it's a very readily utilized by your body. Um, that makes a major difference on how much your body has access to. So if you're relying really heavily on plant sources of iron or even many different supplemental sources of iron, like ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate, um, those are pretty poorly absorbed and sometimes just cause a whole bunch of GI distress, but don't really budge your labs at all. So I like to focus on, on the foods um, particularly emphasizing your iron-rich animal foods, which just so happen to have all those cofactor nutrients built right in. Amazing. So your liver, your liver. oysters, um, other shellfish, clams, mussels, other organ meats like heart, um, kidney, although that's a bit of an acquired taste. Um, those are really by far and above our richest sources of 
almost like all the things that you need for red blood cell production and keeping iron where it needs to go. So I like to focus on those mostly and then use supplements as like a very last resort because an excessive amount of iron can actually be inflammatory to your system. And it's just kind of like a very fine dance that, that you want to play. Um, so that can look like, you know, hiding liver into ground meat dishes. If you're not used to having liver, um, it can look like a desiccated liver supplement. It can look like, um, adding in oysters into the diet. Um, if you're not in a place where oysters are readily available, there's like canned smoked oysters that are shelf stable. They're totally different flavor and texture than fresh, but that's, that's an option to get them in. Um, plenty of different options are out there. If, you know, two different articles on my website, one on liver and organ meats, one on shellfish going through some of the nutritional benefits and and how to fit these into your diet. Cause I know they are, uh, kind of weird foods for a lot of people, um, and, and difficult to make palatable for some of us. Um, but those, that would be my major place to focus. And I've personally found that a lot of my clients can avoid iron supplements altogether. Yeah. And avoid anemia altogether. Yeah. I mean, I love pate, but as a pregnant woman, they need to have cooked liver, like the the chicken liver, just sliced and so on with a bit of lemon juice. Or is pate okay if it's made properly? Like what's the whole deal there? The may opens the whole can of worms. Okay, sorry. You can direct us to your blog. You've got so much information on there. It's okay. Um, yeah, I'll, the, the liver blog, I'll direct you there, but I'll still give an yes. answer. Cause that's annoying to listen to the podcast and not have an answer. And I, I get asked it nearly every she births course. Can we? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it is. Yeah. Yes. The pate yeah. question specifically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the concern barring the typical concerns over liver, which for those I'll point you to that liver article, um, the pate concern specifically is that uh, refrigerated meats and meat spreads such as pate, um, can become contaminated with listeria. So the concern is a listeria risk. Um, what they don't tell you is like the rates of listeriosis, uh, you know, infection in pregnancy is like a fraction of a fraction of a percent worldwide. It's very, very slim risk. Um, so I would go by, you know, how, how fresh is it? Where are you getting it? Did you vet the source? Um, sometimes pate, there's some in the States that I can find that has like a layer of like gelatin or aspic on the top. So it's like sealed off and completely, um, airtight that I personally would be totally fine with having, but if you're getting it from like a deli and it's like open air in, uh, refrigerated thing you know if they made it in the last day or two I wouldn't be concerned but if you don't know how long it's been sitting there that's a bit more of a a listeria risk um you could make homemade pate and then you don't have as much of the concern assuming you keep a clean kitchen and you're going to consume it within a couple days or -hmm. you can make it and freeze it into smaller portions I do think the flavor of pate changes a little bit when you freeze it. And I don't think it's as delicious to like defrost and consume fresh, but I do do that for um, defrosting it and putting it into ground meat dishes. 
And the other option, speaking of ground meat dishes, if you do have that situation of a deli that has it fresh and you don't know exactly when it's prepared, I mean, still ask because it's just good to do your due diligence. But if the pate is going to be cooked, heated up to temperature during cooking, um, that would eliminate the listeria risk. So, uh, so you, you know, could put it in like with another meat, say you're cooking like a bolognese or something. Yeah, putting uh-huh. it in like that. Amazing. Put yeah. it in a ground meat dish, put it in meatloaf, put it in meatballs, yeah. put it in chili, put it in, I have like these Indian spiced stuffed bell peppers recipe, something that's kind of curry-ish tends to be a nice way to hide the flavor of liver. Any of those would be perfectly fine. So from that standpoint, the pate thing, it's purely like this listeria concern, but it's very, very slim chance that you would get it. So (laughs) that's a risk benefit decision you've got to make for yourself. Yeah, everyone, I mean, we're always making these decisions with pregnancy now, if you're, especially if you're interacting with the system, it can happen very early on. Like, well, what is the risk that I'm comfortable with? What is the risk that another person is comfortable with? That varies between providers, even within the one system, within the one hospital, and it varies from person to person. Um, So look, I highly recommend everybody looks at your book. There were so many questions. I want to talk to you about vitamin D and dates and supplements and activated B <laughs> and breastfeeding recovery. But you know what? Everyone can go to your website. They can read your books and your Instagram and they can continue learning. It's, you know, yeah. it's really fascinating what you've done and what you've brought forward. It's incredibly empowering. You know, I really believe in food as medicine. It's one of the, the most powerful ways we can claim our health. Um, We have so much more agency than what we realise. You know, we are what we eat, we are what we think. But when we take agency around our food, it actually changes how we think and how we feel and it creates even more confidence to have a beautiful birth and be healthier and take care of our babies and ourselves. And and that's what the world and families need right now. For sure. I'm all for for the empowered approach all the way through because, yeah, birth and, and motherhood, throw you right into the ringer. So now's the time. (laughs) Now's the time to learn to assert yourself and, and start making choices in your, your best interest in your family's best interest. And yeah, put your foot down. (laughs) We're kind of um, doing a bit of a rise of the feminine series. I forgot to tell you that. And in the email, we're sort of thinking about, you know, what would the world look like if, you know, feminine and masculine energies healthy and balanced on the planet so I don't know if you Mm. see the world like that but from your perspective and the work that you do what would the world look like if the feminine had risen into her full power oh my what an interesting question (laughs) we're very deep Um, and spiritual as well as very pragmatic at Shiva gosh how do I even I uh, so I would see uh smaller closer knit communities a little more a little more village like perhaps where people are people are all contributing it's not quite i don't want to sound like a communist because <laughs> i'm definitely not a communist but people are all contributing um to the betterment of the community and it's not that we're totally cut off from other people or anything like that but um you know, you have like more things that are local. You have the local 
farm that's raising meat, you have the local farm that's raising milk, you have the local baker making sourdough, you have the, you know, groups of mothers that are sharing childcare so that can actually get things done in a day. I mean, that's always a struggle for me. Um, you have work days that are reasonable length. Uh, and you don't have lengthy commutes because you're in this smaller, closer knit community and there's, you know, sharing of time and resources and, and friendships and I don't know, more care for less of us being stuck in boxes on screens and more of us collaborating. When you actually get out and start talking to your neighbors and like seeing people in real life. And I say this as somebody who's moved around a lot and had to change communities many different times. People have a lot of really useful skills that we can like lean into. I'm not sure that we're like losing those in this generation because so many people are just purely raised on screens and don't know how to like do basic things like know what kind of screwdriver or wrench they need to like repair a chair <laughs> instead of just throwing I it out everything. buying one on Amazon. I know. Yeah. yeah. YouTube can teach you everything. You just need like, it's so interesting to be in a place where we have access to everything at our fingertips on the internet. And yet some people still don't have the wherewithal to learn and look up some of these basic things. This, <laughs> I don't know. So I would see our, our world being a little less um, disposable. You know, it really just seems like a lot of things these days, it's like things are cheaply made and um, maybe not inexpensive anymore with inflation, but there's not like an appreciation of, of well-made things that will last and taking care of those things. It's very much this like throwaway culture. So I would just see us returning more to actually caring for our things, <laughs> caring about our belongings, caring about our neighbors, helping each other out, fixing things and, um, you know, have a little bit better work-life balance, maybe a little more like France, where I hear it's illegal to send work emails on the weekend and stuff like oh, yeah. <laughs> a little like more that. separation. Well, yeah, the Northern Hemisphere where they, you know, they've done all the studies and said like working more than 20 hours a week is actually considered to be more unproductive, you know, and some, mm. some companies here, yeah, are trialing a four day working week as well you know well but, I feel that because I try to only work about 20 hours a week so I feel that I mean since I work for myself if I'm being unproductive the only person's time that I'm wasting is my own <laughs> and my family's uh so yes it's a limitation of having enough childcare in order to work but also like brain power limitations you just aren't productive and any of us that have worked in the regular working world know that, you know, after four or five, six hours, you're kind of tapped out. For sure. Really and again, that people. comes back to, you know, what have you had for breakfast as well, right? Uh -huh. Particularly yeah. for our mums and their moods and yeah. absolutely. So are there any final words? I love the world that you described, by the way. That's okay. <laughs> why I moved up here to this little place called Melbourne. I'm jealous of your permaculture setup. That sounds that sounds lovely. I really have no idea what I'm doing, but my gardener just rang. The, I gave my this guy he just finished permaculture. I'm, my garden is his first job, but he's... He's only 22, so I call him my Mullumbimbi son because my son's down in Sydney. So he's just called because he's got to give me instructions. I'm not sure what to do with the swales, like, because it's getting really hot and how to water the, the plants there. So anyway, oh, yeah. I don't know. Well, 
I'm just slowly learning as a fellow, uh, as a, as a fellow gardener, I can tell you, it's just a learning process. Some things take, some things don't. And yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's kind of a wild ride. Yeah. And there's so much wisdom. I love that. Oh, one final thing. When we pull out the weeds in the garden, Zach said to me, leave the weed there because earth has made that weed according to the nutrients that she needs. So she actually needs to reabsorb that weed for herself. It's actually an infant. It's like the biofeedback that's happening through the baby's saliva into the mother's areola. And she then makes what the baby needs. It's so beautiful, that cycle, that Mm. intelligence. It blew me away. Blew me away. Yeah. There's so many interesting theories around uh, gardening. Like if your plant is weak, it will attract bugs. If you've ever had a big garden and I've had many, many large gardens over the years, you'll have like a row of kale and like all the kale is doing great. And then one is like struggling and the bugs all go and eat that one. It's like, it's like it's sending a signal out. Hey bugs, I'm weak. Come eat me or something. But when you have really healthy plants, sometimes they don't they don't send out that signal or something. It's so, yeah, it's so interesting. There's so much that don't really know. Kale. I'm going to put, the next time I put the seeds in, I'm actually going to hold them under my tongue. I'm going to do this Anastasia thing. Oh. My friends from Germany were just here and they just planted their garden in Portugal and she said, you hold the seed under your tongue for like six to eight seconds to inform the seed around what the body requires. I mean, it sounds very woo-woo. But um, now I haven't heard that one before. I know. That's interesting. I know. Hey, so it's all an experiment. <laughs> it kind of is. And we're living and learning and trusting intuition and following nature. And it's beautiful. Is there any final words you want to say to the moms, the birth workers out there, the families? Any final words you want to share? Oh, gosh. Well, you don't have to do it perfect every little bit is, is a step in the right direction. I think we got this conversation got kind of siloed into a bunch of little, uh, intricate topics. So to kind of tie it all together for you, um, we talked, when we talked about the blood sugar balance, hopefully you heard the part about prioritizing protein. That is arguably my most important message uh, because our protein rich foods are a blood sugar stabilizing, but b really micronutrient dense. And maybe you can link out to my article on protein because the number one place that I want people to start, whether you're pregnant or not, by the way, because this is important for all of us, pregnant or not, male or female, breastfeeding or not, <laughs> wherever you're at in your life, protein, it just becomes exponentially more important when you're pregnant and nursing. Um, and so if you can prioritize that particularly for your breakfast, getting enough protein at breakfast, make that one change. And then maybe you can circle back to this conversation and listen to some of the nitty gritty on some of the other topics, but I don't want like that overarching, uh, you know, one thing to focus on protein, really, it'll make such a difference. And then you can go into all the weeds and all the funny topics yeah. um, at other times. I'll definitely link to the protein article. I also listened to your protein a blog, um, a podcast that you did on a lot of protein and the measurements of that. You've got your website's perfectly organized, so there's lots of places for people to go. 
So thanks. thank you. Thank you. Thank I try you. to keep it organized. You it's are. You're so organized. I can tell. <laughs> I do like, I do like organized, but um, not to people think I'm type A and I'm like, I have a little bit of type A in me, but I'm very much type B. But if I'm going to take on a project like organizing a website, it's going to, it's going to be organized. Am I going <laughs> to keep adding a ton of new content to it? You know, every week, like I used to do in years past. Nah, nah, I'm going to write some good meaty content and post that infrequently, but the site's organized. Yeah. <laughs> Right. It's it's a, a wealth of information and a wealth of empowerment. So thank you. Thank you for the wonderful thank you. work you do. Thank you for your time for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. I know thousands of others will. So thank you, Lily. Thank you so much. This was fun. And come to Melon Bindi anytime and help me look after my permaculture garden anytime. Yes, I want to come out there. It sounds so wonderful. It's great. All right. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. I'm Nadine Richardson and you've been listening to The She Births Show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share with a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to know what you would like to hear more of. You can find me and my team of amazing doulas and educators at shebirths.com and our awesome community on Instagram and Facebook. Within any good app store, you can download our free pregnancy guide via she births, two separate words and plural, as well as access our range of online courses. Remember when it comes to having a better birth, an easier transition into parenthood, your education is your empowerment. Don't forget to check out the catalogue of previous podcasts and thank you for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the show.